Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonnell. It's been an eventful week for Brexit. UK Prime Minister Theresa May delayed the vote on her Brexit deal with the EU. She went to Brussels to meet with the EU but got no concessions. Frustrated members of her Conservative Party have now challenged her leadership. A no-confidence vote is happening about now. Odds are May survives the vote but continues her uh, fight for the Brexit deal that certainly does look doomed in Parliament. This morning, question time was especially vivid, vivid, and we're going to play 10 minutes of excerpts right now and get the flavor of the debate in the British Parliament. Here are some highlights from question time. Order. Questions to the Prime Minister. Jeremy Corbyn. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Mr. Speaker, I'm delighted to see the Prime Minister back in her place after a little journeys. Having told the media this morning... Having told the media this morning that she's made progress, can she now update the House on what changes she has secured to her deal? Can I say to the Right Honourable Gentleman, I did travel to Europe yesterday and meet a number of uh, heads of government and the Commission and the European Union Council. That's precisely because I had listened to concerns that were raised in this House and have taken those concerns to Europe. And no one is in any, no one that I met yesterday is in any doubt about the strength of concern there is in this House on the issue of the duration of the backstop. But I'm, I'm interested that the Right Honourable Gentleman wants to know what progress uh, we have made, because actually the Right Honourable Gentleman couldn't care less what I bring back from Brussels. He's being clear, he's being clear, whatever comes back from Brussels, he's going to vote against it, because all he wants to do is to create chaos in our economy... in our society and damage to our economy. That's Labour. That's Corbyn. Jeremy Corbyn! It's very clear, Mr Speaker, nothing has changed. (laughs) Since the Prime Minister has not achieved any changes, either to withdrawal agreement or the future partnership, can she now confirm that we will have the concluding days of debates and votes within the next seven days before the House rises for the Christmas recess? Honourable gentlemen, I had discussions with a number of people yesterday and I uh, have made some progress, but there is further... Well, if he says when, I'll I'll tell members on the other side when we've had a meaningful vote. We had it in the referendum on 2016. And if he he wants a meaningful date, I'll give him one. 29th of March 2019, when we leave the European Union. Totally and absolutely unacceptable to this House in any way. This House, this House agreed a programme motion. This House agreed the five days of debate. This House agreed when the vote was going to take place. The government tried to unilaterally pull that and deny this House deny this House the chance of a vote on this crucial matter. The Prime Minister and her government have already been found to be in contempt of Parliament. Her behaviour today is just contemptuous of this Parliament and of this process. 
When she made her Lancaster house... Order, order, order. Calm on both sides of the house. The quest... Order! The questions will be heard however long it takes, and so will the answers. Don't try to shout down. All you do is wear out your voices, and you won't succeed. Amen. End of subject. Jeremy Corbyn. Mr Speaker, when the Prime Minister made her Lancaster House speech, she set out her negotiating objectives, and they're worth looking at and quoting. The first objective is crucial. We'll provide certainty wherever we can. Does the uh, current situation look or feel like certainty? Can the Prime Minister mark her own homework on this matter? And indeed we have, at every stage... At every stage, uh, the right honourable gentleman said we wouldn't get agreement in December. We did. He said we wouldn't get the implementation period in March. We did. He said we wouldn't get a withdrawal agreement and a political declaration. And we uh, and we did. If there's an agreement, why won't the prime minister put that agreement to a vote of this house? Will the Prime Minister give the country at least some certainty and categorically rule out the option of no deal? The the way to ensure there is no no deal is to agree a deal. That's the way you ensure there's no deal. But the the right the right honourable gentleman the right honourable gentleman talks about the impact on businesses. I'll tell him what will have an impact on businesses up and down this country. What we learnt just a few days ago, that the Shadow Chancellor wants to change the law so that... Order, order. The Prime Minister's reply must be heard, and it will be. The Prime Minister. Businesses will be affected by the fact that the Shadow Chancellor wants to change the law so that trade unions in this country can go on strike in solidarity with any strike anywhere in the world. That's not, that may be solidarity with trade unions. It's not solidarity with small businesses. And it's not solidarity with the ordinary working people who would pay the price of labour. Speaker, my question was, would the Prime Minister rule out no deal? She has failed to do that. Mary Cray. Mr Speaker, the economy is stalling, business investment is falling, and we have the grotesque... Order. I couldn't care less what somebody chuntering from a sedentary position says is or isn't the truth. What I care about is that the Honourable Lady will not be shouted down any more than any other member in this place will be shouted down. Be quiet and listen. Mary Cray. The economy is stalling. Business investment is plummeting. And we have the grotesque spectacle of Tory MPs putting party interest before the public interest. If she survives tonight's vote, will she finally rule out no deal, face down her hard Brexiteers, let this place vote down her deal and put it back to the public in a people's vote? the Honourable Lady, first of all, the way to, if she wants to ensure no deal, the way to ensure no deal is to agree a deal. That is the best way to ensure that there is not no deal. 
that's the way to ensure it is not no deal. But she talks about the economy. She talks about the economy. Employment is at a record high. Wages, wages are growing. And we've had 23 consecutive quarters of growth, the longest run in the G7. That's a balanced approach to the economy. That's Conservatives delivering for the people of this country. Jim McMahon. Speaker. In 1997, the British Prime Minister issued an apology to the people of Ireland for the historic role in the Great Famine, a famine that saw a million people died and a million people displaced from their homeland. That sent out a powerful and an important message. Will the Prime Minister condemn any notion, any suggestion Absolutely. that food shortages in Ireland will be used to strengthen Britain's negotiating hands Can I say to the honourable gentleman, I am happy to absolutely give that assurance. We would not use that issue in any sense in the negotiating strategy. We want to work with the Irish Government to ensure that we are providing a good Brexit for the UK, a good Brexit for Ireland, and I believe that will be a good Brexit for the European Union. Neil O'Brien. Thank you, Mr Speaker. One of my constituents in Hoodby has written to me to say, I voted for Brexit and I urge you to support our Prime Minister unreservedly and vote for this Brexit deal. Minister has done a terrific job in trying circumstances. The headbangers from all sides and the supine attitude of the Labour Party has meant she's had an impossible job, but she's done so well. And finally, a third from Saddington writes, I'm an employer of 30 people in the Harborough constituency. To vote against the deal will cause political chaos and open the door to the worst possible scenario for this country, a far-left Labour government. Does the Prime Minister agree with me that my constituents have got a lot more common sense than the members opposite who want to stop Brexit and fundamentally damage our democracy. I think, I think, Mr. Speaker, I think, Mr. Speaker, this can be an occasion where I give a very short answer. Yes. And Caroline Lucas. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. The plotters behind her know that any replacement Prime Minister would face exactly the same party arithmetic and exactly the same deadlock on Brexit. This deadlock can only be changed by going back to the people. The Times newspaper today also said it's her only chance of saving her job and saving her deal. So can she tell the House what exactly is she afraid of? The issue is the issue is that this House overwhelmingly voted to give the choice to the British people as to whether or not to leave the European Union. The British people chose to leave the European Union, and I strongly believe that it is the duty of members of this House to deliver on that vote. And that was excerpts from this morning's Question Time in the UK. Theresa May faces a no-confidence vote in her Conservative Party about now. You'll hear the results here on WBEZ as they happen, probably within an hour or so. And coming up after the break, we're going to talk about environmental protections that the Trump administration wants to do away with. I'm Jerome McDonnell, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. President Trump likes to say he's for clean air and clean water, but his administration has a funny way of showing it. 
Let's talk about a few of the environmental protections the Trump administration wants to do away with. With me is Jamie Rappaport-Clark. She's a former director of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. She's now president and CEO of the organization Defenders of Wildlife. Thanks a lot for joining us. Thank you for having me. I wanted to ask first about these the reworking of the clean water protections uh, that the Trump administration unveiled yesterday. Um, what is this going to do to wetlands? It seems like some of the protections were new and some of them were kind of longstanding. Well, uh, you're right. Um, the the there's been a law through multiple administrations of both uh, Democratic and Republican presidents. There's been a long-standing commitment to clean water, uh, and a lot of that is um, played out through a definition of how we um, address waters of the United States and what the Environmental Protection Agency and the Army Corps of Engineers pushed by this administration, has done what they unveiled yesterday is a complete new definition of waters of the U.S. that erases almost all federal protections for streams that are ephemeral or intermittent. And so that that means that streams that flow only after a rainfall or a snow melt, as well as most of the wetlands in this country uh, that don't connect to larger waterways would be unprotected. And that's the source of most of the fresh water in this country. So that would be huge if, if all of a sudden they're deregulating or have no kind of federal protection framework. And th- this has been argued for a number of years. Uh, lots of court cases uh, surrounding um, this kind of issue. But you know, clean water of this country is important to the citizens of this country, and the Trump rule would would stop protection of wetlands that are separated um, from longer water sources. So it's pretty significant. Would you expect this to be challenged in court and tied up in court for years? It sounds like the kind of thing that um, doesn't go along with the Clean Water Act. Uh, correct. Uh, just even the strictest interpretations. Um, yes, I expect clearly that it would be challenged, uh, both in its um, rollout in the policy framework and its an application, um, because it unravels decades of, of uh, oversight during the George Bush administration, the Obama administration, even before that. So, yeah, I, I expect it'll be challenged in the courts uh, for sure, and I hope it's gummed up till we have a friendlier um, uh, leadership uh, when it deals with the environment. But this is a real low watermark, no pun intended, for how we address the long-term needs of our environment. I'm talking with Jamie Rampaport-Clark, former director of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. We're talking about some of the things the Trump administration is doing. I want to swing over and talk about uh, something it did last week, which was open 9 million acres to drilling and mining interests, um, stripping away protections for the sage grouse, uh, a ground-nesting bird. And this has been an obstacle for oil companies for years. Um, what exactly is happening here? This kind of fits in with the Trump administration's idea that anywhere on public land, oil and grass drilling is is okay. They have a larger strategy at play here. Well, they do, and their strategy is larger, but it's also pretty clear. Um, Expand oil and gas drilling uh, regardless of the consequences to wildlife and wild lands. Uh, And the the sage-grouse 
grand landscape strategy that was completed in the last administration involved 11 states, federal land, state lands, and a lot of of constituencies and stakeholders. And it resulted in a, in a pretty complex, largest I've ever been uh, involved in, landscape scale strategy that was led by the greater sage grouse because that was the target, but it ended up ultimately providing um, rational balance protection for the whole sagebrush sea and hundreds of other species. And um, it, it kind of knitted together this balance conservation strategy. And what the Trump administration is now doing is just pulling the rug out from under that whole strategy. And they're um, uh, moving to change the conservation plans in a number of the states, uh, which will you know, cause the tipping point in how all this knits together. So, but it's all tied to um, uh, you know, uh, 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 being able to open up these federal lands that are set aside for all of us to just uncontrolled oil and gas drilling. Uh, and and I, I guess they imagine that, you know, if, if we don't let the facts get out, then the problems aren't happening. But uh, but we will lose vast amounts of landscape that will be very hard to recover and condemn many species uh, beyond the sage grouse, for sure, um, to a, a pretty significant decline and, and endangerment. So it's really short-sighted, pretty selfish, and really reckless. I wanted to talk with, about you with something else that's in the news, the border wall. I think a lot of people uh, recognize the debate about it is pretty intense right now, and uh, there are people who are for it, people who are against it. Um, from a wildlife perspective, it can be uh, devastating, and you've done a report on how much harm the uh, wall would do to wildlife. I don't think people mm-hmm. um, really recognize how much um, the homeland security can do when they're building a wall. They can do kind of anything they want and all the laws and protections that we were talking about in courts before, they, they just don't apply. That's true. Uh, this is a unique situation. Uh, the the wall along the border between the United States and Mexico, uh, back in 2005, uh, there was a congressional waiver that gave the Secretary of Homeland Security unprecedented power to waive any federal, state, or local law to construct these roads and barriers. Never has happened in the history of this country. So certainly the ones that we are um, involved in, the the environmental laws, the Endangered Species Act, the Clean Water Act, the National Wildlife Refuge System uh, Improvement Act, the Clean Air Act, all can just be swept under in their zeal to cut a big border wall through some of the most fragile landscapes that we have just by virtue of where they exist. And it will have huge and lasting and almost irrevocable damage uh, along our southern borders because certainly wildlife don't know if they're in Mexico or the United States. And that region of the country is some of the most ecologically diverse area that we have, uh, home to 700 vertebrate species, 300 species of butterflies, 500 bird species, and plenty of endangered and threatened species on the brink of extinction. This wall, if it goes through, will absolutely shortstop the movement of wildlife back and forth. Um, It'll drown 
animals in floods because they won't be able to move. There's all kinds of devastating, certainly impact their habitat, but all kinds of devastating impacts that likely um, the wildlife that people care about on those borders uh, will be lost. And beyond that, there's also a huge economic engine beyond the human impacts, which are very significant, is that region of the country has a, a has a pretty significant economic tie to ecotourism. People go there to bird, to wildlife watch, and all of that will be lost as a result of the wall because they'll be bisecting national wildlife refuges, cutting right through the National Butterfly Center, and, and it will really disrupt the economics of, of that whole region for sure. Jamie Rappaport-Clark is a former director of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. She's now president and CEO of the organization Defenders of Wildlife. They've just issued a report on what the ecological damage would be if the U.S. builds a wall along its southern border with Mexico. Thanks a lot for joining us. Thank you so much. Coming up after the break, we'll have Global Notes, and we'll talk uh, about some an international gift that the United States has given the world, uh, Aretha Franklin. We'll talk about Amazing Grace, her album and upcoming film that we're going to get to see for the first time. Stay with us. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. In January of 1972, Aretha Franklin sang at the New Temple Missionary Baptist Church in Los Angeles. Amazing Grace, the album she recorded on those two dates, became her best-selling album. Descriptions of it are routinely accompanied by adjectives like transcendent, legendary, and glorious. Director Stanley Pollack was there with the camera rolling. His film of the event is just beginning to see the light of day, and reviews of that are equally rapturous. And Aaron Cohen has seen the film. He's just back from New York where he spoke before a showing of it at the Film Forum. Aaron is the author of the book Aretha Franklin's Amazing Grace. It is a detailed study of that event in January of 1972. Nice to meet you. Thanks for coming. Nice to meet you, and thank you very, very much for having me here. I would like you to take us back to 1972. Uh, this is Watts, 1972, at a, the Baptist Church in Los Angeles. What's it like? Well, it is a church in the neighborhood of Watts that has just a few years earlier been through the urban tumult that we know about. It's the heart of the African-American community in Los Angeles. Aretha Franklin is at the peak of her vocal powers. She is the most famous soul singer in the world. She is a huge star. And here she goes back to her gospel roots and going into the community to record a live album in the church. She grew up the daughter of a very prominent Baptist minister, the Reverend C.L. Franklin, who was also on the album and in the film. And she records it live, and so much of the energy that she receives are is from her band 
and from the choir and from the audience in this church, in this community. I imagine just the decision to do this kind of a record, it was a big one. I mean, it was, it was some, not what probably a record executive wanted her to do. Um, this this must, must have been a powerful personal thing. It was a very powerful personal thing. And she also, at that time, could have done anything she wanted. And here she is deciding to do a live album playing religious material. Now, it's also likely that Jerry Wexler of Atlantic Records was very much in favor of her doing that because he always wanted her to go back to her roots as a singer. Here she was going back to her roots in terms of material. Also, gospel music had been popular at that time as a crossover music. There was a big hit, Oh Happy Day, a popular uh, single that was a gospel singer that became a R&B and pop hit. So it wasn't like the Atlantic Record Company felt that she was going to, how you say, go against contemporary trends in music either. Now, tell the story about the filming, because um, Sidney Pollack, a big-time director, everybody's heard of, won Oscars and things, he goes in there, films this, and um, I guess he screwed it up a little bit, and, and, it, and, it, sat, and yes. it sat around in a vault for a long time. He wasn't that big at the time. He was on his way to becoming big. Yep. And he, when he had the cameras in and he had the film crew, the sound crew, he did not have the clappers that say, you know, take one, take two that we all know about. And so the sound and the image was not properly synced up. So the film was, it was supposed to have come out to promote the film in the early 70s. They wanted to show it as a double feature with Superfly, which didn't really make sense, but showing it as a double bill with watt stacks would have made perfect sense. Anyway, the film was not finished. They could not sync it up. Years go by, and a man named Alan Elliott, who had worked at Atlantic Records, is able to acquire the footage. Technological changes make it possible for him to sync up the sound and the image so that we can see and hear it as it was performed. And you got to see this uh, footage when you were writing your book, um, Amazing Grace. Um, then you, what did you think about it then? Well, that was when I started writing the book. Alan was very kind to invite me to watch the raw footage, some of the raw footage with him. So I saw a few hours and it was striking as raw footage. It was to see and hear finally this, even as imperfect as it was at that time. And it, there was so much that was revealed about Aretha Franklin that I had never seen before. And I saw a finished version in 2011 after I finished the book, a nearly finished version. And then seeing it and hearing it in a proper movie theater over the weekend brought even more revelations. What, what did you learn about Aretha Franklin from the film? One of the important things that people take away from seeing this film is how much of a team player she was. We know her great voice. We know her powerful presence. We know her personality. But here in this church, she was working with Alexander Hamilton leading the choir, James Cleveland. It was his choir as well as her band. And they were working together. She wasn't domineering. She was there as a team, part of a team. And her band is her exceptional vintage band? This was, I think, her best band. It had some trained players who grew up working the sessions in soul and jazz and rock and roll, the great drummer Bernard Purdy, the great bassist Chuck Rainey, 
and the great guitarist Cornell Dupree. And it's so wonderful to see them on screen as well. The audience is, I imagine, really interesting to look at and, and see. They, they, it looks like there's a lot from the trailer, lots of dancing. Mick Jagger's there. I, you know. Mick Jagger and Charlie Watts from the Rolling Stones are there, and they're mostly in the back. And they are not the most interesting people in the church. The most interesting people are is the, the people. people who are the congregants. <laughs> and also her mentor, Clara Ward, is in the audience. Her mentor is a gospel singer. Her father, Reverend C.L. Franklin, is there. And it's just this great look at this community, how they dance, how they moved, how they interacted with each other. And the film is so vivid in capturing all of that. So it's so amazing to see that. What's it like being in a theater full of people watching it? Yeah, you get to get to experience it with people this week. It was so moving. It was – you could f- feel and hear everybody's heart melting with – each breath that Aretha Franklin is taking, and just also to hear them in this great sound system. Um, what do you know? The film, it, she didn't want it shown. She did not sign it over exactly. Well, um, she never said never. She there was issues with the rights. There was issues with money. There was other issues, maybe that we don't know about. But she never said she never wanted it released. So it's important that it's out now. It's important that her family is very much behind it. And the film, won, over the last few days, just recently picked up a national distributor. So we will be able to see it in Chicago probably within the next few months as well as nationwide. And it's so important that all of us go and see this film. And it's opened in New York and Los Angeles to get it in for the Oscars. Yes. It had to have a week-long run in Los Angeles and New York for qualification for Oscar run. And the theater in New York that is showing in Film Forum is the best showcase for independent cinema in America. And it was, I imagine, it was super fun to be there and be there with people watching the film. It was great. Everybody loved it. There was just communal vibe in the theater that you could imagine was similar to what it was like in the church, too. It was a great feeling to be there in the audience. It was great to see it as raw footage, great to see a nearly finished version, and it was superior to see it in a theater. I can't wait to see it here in Chicago, and it'll be amazing grace in the theaters in early next year. Uh, now, um, you're working on a terrific-sounding new book, Move On Up, Chicago Soul Music and Black Cultural Power. It sounds awesome. It's coming out from University of Chicago Press. Yes, the University of Chicago Press is releasing it in September. And it is a look at the social and cultural changes in Chicago that affected soul music and how the musicians themselves, such as Curtis Mayfield, Shaka Khan, the Dells, Jerry Butler, were change agents themselves and what made their music so distinctive. And, you know, we were chatting a bit before the break about the 50th anniversary of the Black Panthers coming up, and, and this kind of coincides with all that. It's it's a real m- cultural bookend to the political. Yes. Fred Hampton, Bobby Rush, the Black Panthers are a part of this new book, yes. Well, it sounds great. I'll be looking forward to move on up. Chicago Soul Music and Black Cultural Power. And Aaron Cohen is uh, the author of that book and of Aretha Franklin's Amazing Grace, a detailed study of the event in January of 1972 when Aretha Franklin recorded Amazing Grace, her uh, terrific gospel album. And um, it's been great meeting you. Great to meet you, too. And thank you so much for having me here. Um, Why don't we go out here with a little Aretha Franklin music and um, hear a little bit of Holy Holy from the album Amazing Grace. And that's Aretha on piano, too. (laughs) 